be really thoughtful about what the foundation is that you're building on because that can spiral out of control very fast. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. We are a resource for all B2B tech companies to scale by supporting every single role in your go-to-market org and also supporting your infrastructure and various lines of business. If you want to know more about Sales Assembly, you can visit us at www.salesassembly.com or just find me on LinkedIn and send me a message. With that being said, I am so excited to welcome my guest for today. I have Kristen Hayback on the line. Kristen, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. My gosh, absolutely. I'm going to do a brief intro, but I can't wait to dig in to your background because I'm going to say you are what looks to be the new president and COO of Shogun, but you've been doing a C-suite, you know, sort of you're sitting in each one of them and experiencing <laughs> it, which I think is awesome. I used yeah. to work, when I worked at Glassdoor, I worked for an incredible um, couple, incredible CEOs there, but Robert Holman was the CEO. And one of the things that he loved was allowing his executives to sit in different seats and experience it and actually learn what those positions do. And some of the best talent in the world came out of that. And so for you, tell us just a little bit, go back to the beginning, whatever that yeah. means for you, and tell us your journey and what got you where you are to being a female president and COO of an incredible tech company. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so I started off in tech totally uh, accidentally. I, I usually tell the story that I was out of college and I had kind of two job offers. One was to be a, um, an office manager at a tech company and one was to work at the shoe department at Macy's. And that was kind of the two, the two paths ahead of me. And so, you know, who knows what that shoe department path would have led to, but I, I picked the tech company and, and it kind of all worked out from there. So I built up, you know, from, from being the office manager there, and then I kind of stumbled into sales there as well. And then really that was my sweet spot that I found. And from there, I've, you know, I've worked at uh, some great companies like Trello and Atlassian. I was the first revenue hire at Trello. I'd known the team from their previous startup. And then when we were acquired by Atlassian, I... I kept the Trello team running and then I took over Atlassian's enterprise sales team. And then Atlassian was looking to build out this brand new team because they'd been acquiring a bunch of products and their motion needed to change slightly. And so I built that team out from scratch, which was an awesome experience. And then, um, you know, foolishly, maybe I wanted to go back to the fun of a startup. Uh, you know, it, it called me back. And so I, uh, I left Atlassian, which was, which was an amazing place, but I wanted to be back where it was like, small and agile and we're moving fast and um which is exactly what i what i got and so i've been at shogun since leaving there and uh, shogun was at a series b when i started we did our series c while i was here like you mentioned i started off kind of running the sales team then i ended up running sales and marketing and now most recently i'm kind of overseeing the whole place as as coo and, and president which has been a really awesome experience uh so far Diving into, you have a lot of experience there that I think a lot of listeners either 
have been through maybe one piece of that or are about to maybe feeling apprehensive. And being a part of companies going through funding myself, there's a lot of changes that you see kind of in all facets. And for you being a part of that last round, what were some of the changes that you saw kind of at the company level um, and things that you had to kind of quickly adapt to? Yeah, I think in general, right, whether it was at Shogun or anywhere, you know, one of the things that I think is really important when somebody, especially when they leave a, a public large company that has established this like product market fit and they have this engine that's just kind of moving and they're like, I should go to a startup. You know, I had a startup background. I knew what it was like and I, I left from there back into startups. Sometimes people don't realize that when you are at a startup, at least this is my opinion, it is kind of a business that constantly changes every six months, every six to 12 months, right? Fundraising Mm -hmm. or no fundraising. I mean, it is fundamentally a different place constantly, constantly kind of reinventing itself because at that kind of scale, you know, going from 25 employees to 50, 50 to a hundred, a hundred to, it is, you hit these break points along the way where you're like, oh man, we're never going to make it through this. And then you push through that. And then you hit another break point where you're like, ah, what's this thing we're doing? And you hit another one. Um, and it just constantly happens. And so funding is one of those for sure. And, and you know, with funding is, it's awesome, right? Because you have this money in the bank and you have this capital to play around with. But now the expectation is that you're going to take the money of the bank and make it into more money. You know, it's not just free money for you to do whatever you want with. And so it's just, to me, I think a lot of that growth is is operational, right? What, what would have worked with two salesperson, two salespeople can't work for 20 salespeople. And so what needs to change, right? You know, how do you adjust that? What works for, you know, 10 engineers doesn't work for 50 engineers anymore. And so how do you set those people up for success? You go from being a company that was all oral history and it was like, talk to Joe. He's been here since the start. Joe knows all the secrets. And then you're like, shoot, I can't scale Joe. I need to find it. And then it's like, let's put an LMS in place. You know, these are all of the things that change. And funding is certainly like, like I said, a, a blessing and a curse to some extent through that process, which is it allows you to accelerate. But you got to be, you got to know what the return on that acceleration is going to be. Yeah. And it's it's easy to make mistakes with all of that. Yeah. Because you're moving so quickly and everyone has sometimes competing agendas or different ways they want to spend right. the budget or the person that you move into this role probably wasn't a fit for that role. And now we have to figure yeah. out what we do with that. So were there any mistakes that you can think back on that you made that ultimately you learned from and now you're stronger for? Yeah, I think that when you go to accelerate, you know, it, you really need to make sure you have a solid foundation that you're ready to accelerate from. And and I think, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a mistake, but this is the thing that I'm constantly reminded of maybe is a better, you know, way to say it, which is I have watched, you know, peers in the space. I've watched, you know, my my own teams and, and things like that. And, and you think that sometimes you're at that foundation, but if you start to accelerate, if you, if you say, let's bring 10 salespeople on and you don't have an enablement plan to make those people successful or you don't have, you know, if you're not ready from a territory perspective or route, whatever it is, like, how are those 10 people going to hit their quota? Like the 10 people themselves don't just make the quota happen. Right. And so, you know, I wouldn't say it's a mistake this time, hopefully around, but it's definitely a mistake, you know, early in my career I've made. And it's a mistake that I think really is easy for people to make when they suddenly get all the resources. Cause there is this sentiment, I think a lot of times of, oh, there's just too much work to get done. 
with the team that I had. If only I had more people. And it's like, then you put the more people on and then those people are like, oh, we don't have enough people to do this. We need more. And it's just like can very easily spiral out of control. And I, I do, I sit on a couple of boards and I do some advising work. And this is the first thing people will say, hey, we got our funding. What's the org supposed to look like? And it's like, hey, just slow down. Cause it's like, I wanna, we're gonna bring in a VP of this. We're gonna bring in a VP of this. And I was like, you know what all those VPs are gonna want? They're going to want directors. You know what all those directors are going to want? They're going to want managers. You know what the managers are going to want? More I see. So it's like, just be really thoughtful about what the foundation is that you're building on because that can spiral out of control very fast. You're so right. Like companies early on go, really? It's it's that role specifically. They go very VP crazy. Oh, that, and that's hard to hire for too because everybody now, I mean, there's a lot of title manipulation. I think yeah. especially in this industry. And so when you're hiring for a VP, oftentimes you put that up, you're like, we need a VP of sales, right? And it may be your first sales hire, yeah. right? So you're yeah. looking for a VP, you're like, what's the responsibility? It's like, well, build out the territories. And you're like, oh, like a salesperson? I'm like, well, yeah. Right. But right. also like, you're going to be a VP yeah. and you do this balance across yeah. multiple departments. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but kind of in your opinion, yeah. you get to the point as a company where you're, you're sort of, you're ready to start hiring more people and maybe- yeah. You're ready to build on the product-led growth that you've had or yeah. transition to sales-led growth. And yeah. when when you're advising companies in there, where do you mm -hmm. usually tell them to start? Because I always see we're going to hire a VP of sales or we're going to yeah. hire a BDR who's going to supplement our product-led growth. Yeah. What, are you, what do you right. think about those? Yeah, I mean, it's such a, such a great question. I was just talking to somebody about this recently too, where they were like, what's that? And I love when someone's just honest and will ask the question, they're like, what's the difference between a VP of sales and a CRO? And I was like, well, thank you for asking that question. I'll Let's tell you dive in. Let's dive right. in. Right. So it's like, I, but I think that question is exactly right. And how many times is it, you know, maybe we're for a VP of sales. Okay. Tell me about your team. Well, we have one guy <laughs> who's the AE and it's like, so you need a VP of sales to manage the one guy. Like, I don't understand. So I think it depends, right? I think from a product, if you have really strong product led growth, and so that means, in my opinion, right, what, when I think about PLG, it means that you can discover the product, play around with the product, buy the product, um, all without having to talk to a salesperson, right? And so mm. if you can do all of that, you should have a good bit of data that is informing for you, you know, where you should be hiring those people at. So if you have this PLG motion and you have sales coming from it, you should be able to, I think a lot of times with that, actually look at bringing in somebody who's, you know, maybe RevOps or somebody who can really then start to look at that data, cohort that out and decide what you're gonna, you know, and maybe that's a RevOps person, maybe it's a head of strategy, maybe it's, you know, there's a lot of different needs for it, but it becomes a data exercise. I think a lot of times with that, if you're not quite at that level and you're like, Hey, we've got a little bit of traction. We think we're mostly going to be a sales led organization and somebody has to talk to the customers. You know, then maybe the best first couple of hires are like three SDRs or two AEs. And you just throw some numbers against the wall and see what kind of traction you get. I very, very rarely would suggest that you bring in a VP of sales to figure out the motion. Like, I think really good VPs of sales usually or, or CROs or whatever you want to call that title they're usually somebody who comes in and helps you scale it, right? Who, who helps you understand what doesn't work for five people and how to make it work for 50. But they're not necessarily the person who it's like, we have all these folks who maybe are interested. Can you figure out what our motion is? And in those instances, it really does need to be, 
you know, at a different level. And so that could be this, the CEO playing that function for a while themselves with an SDR, it could be a couple of AEs, it could be a sales manager, right? Somebody who's been a successful AE who doesn't mind being a player coach while the motion is being figured out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm rambling, but it really does depend on the motion, what part of it is figured out. But I always kind of come back to like, is there data that can lead the way at least before you start scaling into something too much? Absolutely. And if that was rambling, we're going to be in great shape. Because that was a really, <laughs> all right, that, <great>. was, <laughs> that was a useful ramble. I imagine there's a lot of notes being taken. And you kind of bring me to, to this idea that you're right, that you have a lot of companies who, whether they've identified it or not, they're really sitting squarely in product-led growth, right? Like they don't yeah. have to hire salespeople. And I hear right. a lot of early on startups who are almost like, we're at that point where we have to hire a salesperson. It's like, yeah. I, I rarely hear like, we're so excited to hire sales. And they're like, all right. We have to. We have to, yeah. We have to, right? And in your opinion, do you feel like you always want to navigate away from PLG into SLG? Or do you feel like there's yeah. there should always be this healthy blend? I hear a lot of yeah. thoughts on this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's so funny, right? Because I think that first you kind of got PLG as this term that everybody was like, what's PLG? Let's figure it out. Yeah. And now everybody's like, we should be PLG. At all costs. And now I think you're also hearing this other, this like, so you kind of rotate from one direction to rotate to the other, like sales-led, PLG, one or the other, only these two things can exist. And the term I'm hearing more frequently now, which is the way I've always thought about my teams and I've always built my teams, is, is sales assist PLG. And the way I think about that, at least, is that in a great PLG model, if you're thinking about everything from PLG, it means that you're thinking about your go-to-market, your product growth, all that with is how could somebody get value without having to talk to somebody? It doesn't mean they will never talk to somebody. Just they, they could, in theory, engage with my product. You know, let's take Trello, for example. You can get in. You can sign up for Trello. You could understand to move your card around the board. You could make another board. You could add people to it. And you could pop a credit card and to buy it. All without having to talk to somebody. Now, I think often what you will start to bump into is that there are a group of people who need to talk to somebody. And so those are folks who want to buy the software at an enterprise level and they can't just put $50,000 on a credit card or $100,000. They can't just accept your T's and C's or they can't not have gone through some kind of you know process with you, right? Because they have to pay by PO or they have to, whatever it might be. And so then that's where, and I think a lot of times you'll get someone being like, well, we have to hire a salesperson or something like that. And, you know, you don't have to, you could look at maintaining that angle from a customer success perspective. There's a bunch of other ways you could think about it. Channel is one way to think about it. But I do think that really successful PLG companies end up ultimately having some sales assisted motion, even if it's not always a salesperson, but it's somebody who will get on the phone with some subset of your base to talk to them, whether it's cohorted out by, hey, these guys have over a thousand users in the system, so I'm going to reach out. Or if it's cohorted by, if you're going to spend X amount, we'll let you pay it on a PO instead of putting on a credit card. So the, the degree of how much that sale is assisted by a human can vary, but I think most of them will need to get to the point where they have to do something. So some will have a lot of that cohort covered by sales assisted. So we'll have a very small part of that cohort covered by sales assisted. And that kind of defines the, the level of PLG, I think, that that motion is growing by. 
And in your opinion, do you think that it needs to be mutually exclusive? And I'm going to quantify this because another Mm -hmm. three-letter acronym comes to word, MQL. Because I find that you have companies where they start with a lot of heat with their product-led growth. And I'm like, okay, we have to hire salespeople. And salespeople are expensive and they take time to ramp. And you want them to perform and then... You almost build a machine where because you have the salesperson asset, you want to make sure that all of the leads are going to that salesperson. Right. And so yeah. then you introduce this idea of MQLs where we are still building somewhat of a self-serve machine for customers to qualify themselves. But then we want the MQLs to filter to the salesperson and we yeah. almost forget about the, pro- the product-led growth because now we have salespeople. It feels like it's mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I remember like when I was running a sales org that I would actively hear marketing and sales smash into each other because yeah. sales was threatened by yeah. any kind of self-serve product like growth machine because it meant if we have that, you don't need me. Have you mm-hmm. seen that kind of push and pull mutually exclusive dynamic? And is that right? That's a big yeah. question. So yeah, yeah, yeah. T- no, take bites. That- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally... It's totally fair. Yeah, I think a lot of times that there are these teams that always kind of end up butting hats, right? And I think I was joking earlier with someone that it tends to be the salespeople. It's like salespeople don't get along with marketing. Salespeople don't get along with product. Salespeople don't get along. I don't know if there's a common theme here, but there seems feisty. to be what happens. Yeah. It's a feisty but, um, bunch, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think you're you're right. And I, I think that's the push a little bit to really understand the cohorting because I think that there should be a very clear definition of what never will go to a salesperson. And the really hard thing with that um, is that you have to accept that maybe you don't have as high of a close rate with that cohort, or they don't have as big of an ACV, or they don't, you know, whatever it is. And one of the things I learned at Atlassian, right, you know, and this happened all the time there, which was people would be like, oh, did you see the name of that company that bought this? Like, it's so frustrating. We can't go after them. But the reality was that if the product was doing its thing, that customer was going to grow on its own. And so even if you landed them at $500 instead of $5,000, you know, you they would get to 5000 and more ultimately because it had become such an ingrained tool and they had enjoyed the experience so much and everything was built for that growth. And so what it really became was let's, that one was going to close anyway. Maybe you could yeah. have made a change, incremental change here or there, but hey, there's this other one that probably won't close on its own. And that salesperson is where you are most valuable at. That is where you as a human provide the most value. And so it's like, where do you put the human in this process to provide the most value? And I think about this with SDRs, you know, versus marketing, which is if I wanted you to do a 20 drip automated message thing through outreach or something, I don't need you as a human sitting hit send. I have marketing automation tools for that. The whole point is that you as a human can look at it look up business information about them, customize it, have that outreach feel really personal and value on to that individual. Let the marketing engine that wants to drip out generic material, drip out generic material. And that's how I think about like trying to funnel every MQL to a salesperson and, and butting hence there. And so what it might mean is that maybe you pay that salesperson a higher commission on those individual deals, you know, and, and that's where it's like from a COO or CRO or CEO, whoever's making that decision. Sometimes that's where the frustration comes, where you were saying like, 
oh, we're spending all this money for this person and they're only bringing in X, Y, Z. And it's very short-sighted to think of it like that. Because you're right, then the only other way that they can prove their value is to say, well, drop that lead score, drop that cohort. Why are we doing it at 1,000? Let's do it at 500. And it's like, then you think your reps are bringing in more, but they're actually just kind of like, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in that scenario. You know, you're not actually adding anything onto it. That's exactly right. And and that and that is what it feels like. And it's I think that's where companies get really, really stuck and they wind up having a super low ROI on their salespeople yeah. is, you know, sales salespeople ultimately want to hit their targets. They want to hit their numbers. They want to be promoted. They want to be at the top of the list. And if you have a part of your inbound that feels like a warmer lead and somebody who wants to buy and we tell that sales individual, hey, guess what? Like, that customer can take care of themselves. We don't need the human equity. Yeah. It almost feels like, well, you're preventing me from hitting my goals. You're bringing in warm leads and you're not like, they could have spent more, right? That's what right. I hear sales. And, and actually it's a good question around how do you combat that? Because often we'll hear that, right? Like we'll have yeah. somebody who will MQL in, maybe they'll go to the self-service machine yeah. and you've got your PLG strategy working perfectly. Marketing is bringing them in and then people are like, I can look at this, I can shop it. I don't need a salesperson, yeah. they buy. And then you have sales rep with large quota who is looking at all of the existing customers coming <laughs> yeah. into the funnel and going, oh, well, this person bought on um, the self-serve model, but we left so much money on the table. I yeah. could have gotten them to spend so much more. Can I go after them? What, in a situation yeah. like that, is that healthy behavior? Is that what we want? Yeah. What creates a mechanism sure. that works like that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things, right? One is I think comp is really hard and yeah. people don't put the right emphasis against it, right? Because what I see a lot of times is these promise of these really big OTEs and, you know, like, ah, come join us, we'll pay you 300000 as an enterprise sales rep. Like, but your base is 70 and you're going to make the rest through OTE. And it's like, yeah, somebody like that, it's, it's so ridiculous. And you are forcing them really to be in that environment where they have to do this unnatural action to try and get where they are. And so the first thing I would say is like, it comes back a lot of times to comp and asking what behavior do you want to incentivize? And if your comp is appropriately set, I think you don't necessarily have that problem. There's also like a cultural element to it, right? About you know, really explaining to Brock's when they join, like what the business is and how it works and what very important part you play in it. Right. And that your part is very important. And the engine's part is very important. And those two things can exist at the same time. Right. And so there's that. And then I think there is this other element though of like, you know, somebody comes in, that deal could have been for bigger. I think that's where it's it's a question for me of like, is that an account executive's job or is that customer success and account management? Maybe there should be a person who's coming behind trying to expand that account. Still don't necessarily think it's an account executive because an account executive's job is to get you to say yes. You yes. already said yes. So like if the answer is you should have said yes and then, well, it's like, but then let somebody else do the and then. Like, you don't, you, we got the yes. That was your job. Your job was to get a, a contract in place. Your job was to get the buy. The buy is done. Now we got to get it bought more places. That is a challenge too, but that's a different skill set. It's a totally different skill set. And it's, it is not a lot, it is not training people to go after low hanging fruit, right? Like when my reps used to dig through, right. you know, those self-served, you'll be like, oh, I could, I was like, what are you, what are you doing over here? And I realized that to your point, the read between the lines is that that behavior is a leadership issue. It's an expectation issue. It is not setting the right parameters and 
not compensating to motivate the right behavior. And this is a, t I'm going to throw right. a tough one at you now, especially okay. right now. There's a lot of questions around comp just yeah. floating around in the market. And to your point, there are some unicorn non-sustainable offers that yeah. we are seeing right now. Like companies yeah. are going to have to right size. I don't yes. want to watch it. It's going to be a train wreck. What do you feel like is the secret sauce to properly incentivizing a new business rep? Like, where do you think, where do you yeah. think that lies? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll tell you how I've always done comp. I don't know if it's like, I, I don't know if I've figured it out either, but I, what I do, which is maybe a little controversial, I actually try to avoid accelerators, decelerators, Ooh anything like that, what I say is I have given you a reasonable quota for you to hit. Like if we, if you miss this quota, we have failed at our quota setting for you, which means that you shouldn't be able to miss it by very much. You probably also shouldn't be able to over attain by very much. But if you do over attain, that's great. Let's say your comp rate is 10%. It's 10% then on any of the upper attainment. Like that's awesome. You will get all that money there. It doesn't need to suddenly become, hey, when you are at 59%, then we pay you at 1.2%. And then when it's at 70%, we pay you at 1.6%. And then if you hit this, we pay you at two, two, two X what we were paying. It's just so, it's a game then. And if you make a game for somebody, they will look to game a system. And for me, what I say is your quota is a million you get 10% of a million. And like, that's what you get. And if you make, if you somehow sell 2 million, that's awesome. You'll get 10% of 2 million. That's your accelerator. And for me, it comes back to that culture aspect of me saying like, I have set a reasonable number for you. I feel very firmly that I have set a reasonable number to you. That reasonable number doesn't exist in a land where you have to go into stuff you shouldn't be touching to be able to hit it, you know? So don't go there because I set you a number based off of what was reasonable for you to do. That's my comp velocity. I also tend to sit a little bit more on like the 60, 40, 70, 30 base to, to commission split versus like a 50, 50 or below. And that's been an evolution in my thinking after having been at Trello and then Atlassian and on. And I just have come to realize that like even a small percentage change um, from being 50, 50, even to 60, 40, you just get reps that are like, they feel a little more valued. They feel a little safer and they still really want to produce for you, obviously, because it's a pretty good gig. Because the thing is, most people see all these rucks leave at like the nine month mark and stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah. It's because they're, it's because their guarantees have dried up and they're going to hop to the next guarantee, right? Don't really want to do that. Like you said, reps want to win, you know, generally good reps at least want to win. And so even by giving that little bit of a change in philosophy, you get it back in the way that they think about, in my opinion, working for you and with you as a sales org that is changing. And maybe you don't always set it perfectly, but they were, you know, they get that, you know, you work together a little bit more in a partnership, I think. I mean, you're hitting on, I think, what what causes a lot of people to company hop a lot, which is that disguising a marathon as a sprint, you know, mm -hmm. and people think like, well, I have this amazing compensation plan. I'm going to like go over it so far. And then when that dries up, they're like, OK, I'm going to go to the next one. And I actually think that you can see now, especially in the last two years, that people have made it, it's it's a whole technique to do that. Right. Which yeah. is to like stay for a little while 
don't stay long enough to be able to decline in numbers. It's like keep riding the coattails and jump and jump and jump. Uh, And it's scary as an employer to see that, especially if you're at the point where you're needing to to make these really critical sales hires and you want someone who is experienced. Somebody who's worked at five tech companies in the last eight years looks like Mm -hmm. they're coming at you with a lot of experience, but you you gotta dig in and see, have you been anywhere long enough to achieve mastery and consistent results or are you jumping when it starts to dry up? So if anything, it's a good reminder to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, circumstances happen for people and I totally get that. And it's not like I would never look at somebody for under a year because I've got plenty of amazing employees that I've hired over the years that, you know, had one or two, whatever it is, where it was like under a year for various circumstances, right? But I think you're right, which is like, what's the story of you as a sales rep? What's your story of success? And sometimes you join a bum company and it is a bum company. But like, if you've been at like, all these marquee names, but you've been at all these marquee names consistently for sub a year. You know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, whoever, you know, Slack didn't have product market fit figured out when you were there, you know? So yeah. like, if you know, you should be having a history of success, but I don't want to, you know, I think it's like, I don't want to know that you only hit your quota during your ramp period, which when right, your quota right. was like 12% of what it would have been. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you got to look for that history. I think you're right. I think it's coming on a right size. I think this game can't, keep getting played where reps are hopping this much, but the market's just been so hot. It accommodated to it, you know? It did. It did. I mean, the market, I mean, and, and, you know, to your point, it's a lot harder now to get down to the brass tacks of why people have made moves because layoffs are abundant. And there's been some of the most talented people in all of tech who have found themselves on the market yeah, And they're right in the pool with somebody who maybe doesn't have the talent other than kind of hopping when things start to dry up. And so yeah. it's a good idea to get really good at interviewing and yeah. asking those kinds of questions right now as you're looking to scale your org. Because you really can't, I, you can't tell by looking at somebody's LinkedIn with like yeah. you really now have to dig in and ask. The last question I have for you on yeah. this, because I could I could pick your brain all day. I'm having a great time. I hope you are too. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> we had we had our sales assembly big annual event for the first time earlier this week. And one of our speakers, um, Mary Shea from Outreach, kind of made this point that you have this this tough issue to overcome with sellers on your team when it comes to comp and quota, because there's this unspoken mm-hmm. rule that if I grossly exceed my target, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a great year this year, but I've just yeah. proven to the business that I can do a lot more. And so the gravy train ends yeah. now. So it's right. this idea of, I don't want to overperform and screw myself next year. I don't yeah. want to underperform and screw myself this year. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that anyone has the solution to this, but given yeah. kind of where you're going and what you're talking about, where do you feel like the balance sits there and getting the right performance out of the sales reps in your org? Yeah, that's absolutely, yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I have the answer either, but I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. it kind of comes back to once again, like I think looking at your mix of comp to base is is really important. I think, you know, if people are doing one year comp plans, like my general guidance is to stop doing that. You know, I, I like a six month comp plan. I think personally I do. That's what we always had at Atlassian too, because I think it gives you the chance to do, to set things right either way. Like maybe I set your quota entirely wrong. Like you want to wait until the end of the year 
for me to resolve that. Or maybe we need, especially in startups, right? Things move so fast. Maybe I need to change your territory. Maybe I need to reset this. Maybe our pricing model change. Like a six month plan allows for a lot of flexibility for both parties in a lot of ways. And again, if you're not doing an accelerator, it, it does help make things easy to, to change that. But I think it also comes back to like culture and management and understanding, you know, if you're working really closely with your leader, I imagine they would know if you were holding back or if you were, you know, whatever it might be. So, you know, I think I, I don't have a great answer for it other than to say, I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think it's a handful of things, but I think for me, if I had a rep that absolutely crushed it, you know, it's more than just the comp. I would want to keep that person around or whatever I could make them keep, keep around for. It's like, well, what's the growth you want? What do you want to be? Is the rep the life for you? Is it, what else can we do for you? How do we make you feel valued? Because there is a, there is an element of it is true, which is that if those numbers can be hit by a bunch of people, that probably means quota and comp is set wrong. Like that's yeah. just the truth of it, right? Like that is, if you have a whole team whose quota was a million and everyone did three, you say your quota wrong. I mean, you just did. Like there's no, uh, it's not like, but they shouldn't have held back and were, and they shouldn't punish for it either. And so it becomes a question of like, how do you right size that? But, but ultimately it's like, quota is a funny thing, you know? You can have a $3 million quota one place, a $300,000 quota another place that, you know, whatever it might be, and still have the same OTE. And so there's like a mind shift thing you have to change with somebody where they'll feel like, well, I had done this and now I'm doing this and you're asking me to do the same thing. It's like, well, you can leave here and you can go somewhere else. Who knows what that number will be? But you also don't know if you'll hit it or not. You know that you are good at selling this. You know that you have a team you're working well with. Like your job is to sell it and your amount we paid you to sell it is this. That is ultimately what it is. And I think sometimes it's like polish up that language, but like that's the conversation you also need to tell people. It, it needs, you talk to people like they're adults, like explain how the business functions. I constantly shocked how many people don't understand how a business runs. <laughs> right now it's like, they just right. don't get it. Well, I mean, you're, th there's an incredible tip here you're dancing on, which is the right one, that at the time of hiring, there is a responsibility by the candidate and the company to make sure that everyone fully understands the nuances of what the number and the comp are going to be and what right. the quota is made up of. Because to your point, when we're talking about people hopping all over, a lot of people right now are chasing OTEs. Yeah. And they haven't had enough experience to ask the question about the attainability of that. So you could have one company with an OTE of 180,000 and another company with an OTE of 300,000. And you go, oh my gosh, 300,000, I'm going to jump over there. I'm going to make so much money. But if the company that has the $180,000 OTE has a better base commission split and yeah. it's based off of a $150,000 quota and an ASP of $50,000 right. per deal, you're going to blow that out of the water versus I went to the $300,000 OTE with a $3 million quota and the ASP yeah. of 12.5 and now I'm right. underwater. You know, And right. so it's like, it's those questions that I think the more you yeah. hop, you don't ask it. And so then you get there and you underperform. And now yeah. the company's not hitting the number, right. the reps aren't hitting the number and we just jump. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's frustration, right? A balance for everybody. And then it just, yeah. just is super cyclical. And then they start looking for like, where's that low hanging fruit? So it does all right. like, come back around or they're resentful of the machine that's selling when why can't we do take that revenue instead so yeah it's all interconnected for sure and and you're absolutely right which is like you got to be your own advocate in these conversations you got to ask those questions the fact that that accidentally just came back around makes me feel really great i was like right and then <laughs> they go 
It wasn't an accident. We got, see, you can't, we got to say we knew it was doing yeah, that it was, the whole time. We wrapped it back around. That's it right, just shows, it, it just shows that none of these things are truly accidental. Like they are no, all yeah. interconnected. Like there's every yeah. element of building your revenue organization. One does impact the next. Yes, like we can't yeah. forget that. Yeah. That's why that's the thing with like the silver bullet thinking. You can't yeah. have silver bullet thinking because yeah. there is no, it's like, okay, we'll fix the comp plan. And it's like, well, then this other stuff happens. So you do have to yeah. think about it holistically. It is an ecosystem. Oh, well, I could talk to you all day, but we are reaching the part of the episode with the rapid reveal. So okay. are you ready for us I'm, to dive in a little more I'm personally? Ready. Let's do it. I mean, <laughs> let's I, do it. Let's do it. Let's jump in. All right. Rapid reveal. You have five questions with 60 seconds or less for each. And we are helping the listeners get to know you as a person a little bit more. Another one of the incredible female icons in tech that I have been lucky enough to have on the show. Let's learn more about you. So awesome. number one, what do you think makes for a great mentor? I think a great mentor is somebody who is just radically open, you know, that mm. sense of just radical candor and transparency. And I think one of the things that I really try to bring into my conversations when I talk to people is I just, I'm open about where I've failed. <laughs> you know, I talk a lot about failures because I think they're probably the ones that are most useful to learn from. And I'll just be really transparent with people about whatever they kind of ask around and I'll be transparent about how I think they're doing. And I think that is probably the most important trait. Oh, amazing. I couldn't agree more. That's a really good answer. Um, number two, my personal favorite for everybody. What's an irrational fear of yours? I've come to think it's an irrational fear, but it has taken me a long time to get here, which is I still really grapple with imposter syndrome. I'm pretty sure at any given time, someone's going to be like, I listened to that thing you said. And like, what the heck? Like You're somebody's wrong. actually listening to you say, I, I feel slightly better about it now, but I still do. I, I still have that quite a bit. Like I'll leave a meeting sometimes. And be like, Is that okay? Is that weird? Everyone going to think that was full of, you know, yes. So I, I think it's this testament to how far I've come that I think it's an irrational fear, but it still exists. I mean, that one hits me too. And then when your irrational fear actually pays dividends, then you're like, oh gosh, I should keep fearing it. Like when I look at Facebook right. memories from 10 years ago and I said something stupid like, going to the gym and then Chipotle for dinner, smiley face. I'm like, why did I post that on the internet? 10 years ago. What am I doing? And then I'm just in my head, like, what's going right. to surface? Yeah. Like, yeah. Just like, why? But so now you, you know you like Chipotle back then. So see, it was worth it. And I still do. <laughs> Cilantro rice every time. All right. What is your earliest childhood memory? So I don't know if it's my earliest, but um, I, I have a hard time understanding where things fall in the timeline. But I remember my parents were sales reps and we would get in the car and they would drive their territory. And it was, I grew up in Atlanta. And so we had the South. So we'd go up to like Dollywood area, all the tourist shops, cause they sold to these gift shops. And I remember going to like these meetings with them at, and taking the like little book of all the things that people could buy from and just being like one of my own little business card and be like, Oh, I'll be a little business lady. Like I just remember thinking like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a little professional. Um, and I'd like, we, a lot of times the stores would be in the mall and I'd see like mannequins with suits on. I'd be like, I'm going to get a little suit. And so anyways, that's one of my earliest memories. It just, people would ask like, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I'd always be like, I want to be a little business lady. I don't know what they do, but I want to be one. 
Well, now you're an amazing business lady. So I did it. Kind of had a dream. Yeah, you did it. Achieved. <laughs> Achieved. Yeah. You can buy any suit you want. I love that. Number four. What's the last advice that you gave to somebody? I think not this, not including this because this was a lot of yeah. advice. This aside. Yeah. yeah. The the you know things are they're hard wherever you are, right? And and they think I've talked to a lot of friends and stuff during this time period, and and maybe I've even given this advice to myself a couple of times. But I think there's this real sense of you know chasing grass is greener, like hopping for the OTE kind of narrative that we were just talking about. And I think that in my wisdom, <laughs> my older age and my wisdom, I've kind of come to realize that like you know, everywhere is going to have a thing that's broken. You just don't know what the thing is yet. And so you should go for growth. You should go, you know, if where you are is is truly toxic, obviously, like things like that. But if you're always just hopping, thinking that like, oh, look at those guys over there. They've got it all figured out and we don't have it figured out. You'll hop and you'll find that it's not all figured out there. And I think this can be a work piece of advice. It can be a personal piece of advice too, right? And I feel it. I have kids. I feel it as mom guilt too, where I'm like, look at that mom. She's got it all figured out. I'm a hot mess. We forgot it was field day. But it's like, you know, the the grass is not always greener. In fact, it almost never is greener. It's just, it's just less green in a different patch maybe than where yours is less green. And just really weighing that. And I think for me, it's like loving the people I work with, loving the thing I do, having them value my time. That's the kind of stuff I've come to really value instead of trying to hop to the thing that I think is like the rocket ship or the thing that's all figured out. What I mean, that's a healthy dose of perspective, right? It's like, yeah, the grass is greener where you water it, you know? So just try to do the best you can where you are. I love that. And last but certainly not least, what fills your cup? What makes you happy? I think I like solving hard puzzles. I like talking through those things. Uh, I like it at work. I like it at home. You know, it's funny. We all in the morning, we'll sit down and my son's nine and he's like, we'll all do Wordle together. And I was like, I love doing this. It's great. I never thought to do this. And I was like, I'm going to buy the New York Times crossword now because I just love solving puzzles. And um, so whether it's a work puzzle, it's like, you know, that question of how do I fix the GTM engine or how do I do this or how do I do that? And it's, or if it's a personal thing, I just, I think I, really like it you know it's like maybe it's not a very exciting thing to say fills your cup but it to me I, I i think it's very rewarding you're an incredible person and an absolute <laughs> asset anywhere you go truly i mean like Thank listening you. to your brilliance over the last 45 minutes i'm better for it you've you've certainly <laughs> filled my cup with your with your advice ah, so yeah I imagine I'm not the only one. People are going to probably want to connect to you, talk to you, and either hear about you or hear about your company. So where can folks go to find you and connect with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can find me on on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter as well. It's just kind of my first name and, and my last name. And yeah, I mean, you can reach out to me any of those places. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being an incredible guest on the show. And hopefully this isn't the last time that we hear from you in the tech community. You're doing lots of amazing things. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And everyone, we will see you next time on Taking the Lead. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.